Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Welcome, Dr. Nicole Rokas, to the Prying Priest Podcast. Hi. I want to paint a picture, a word picture for our audience right now. And that word picture is that we're currently sitting in your kitchen. We have... Hamilton, Ontario. In Hamilton, Ontario. We have a cup of coffee that you made, pour-over coffee, that is delicious, with frothed milk, a lovely tablecloth, and we have Felix, your dog, sitting behind me, chewing on something that I hope is not my shoe. Uh, he's chewing on his baby puppy, Penny. He's chewing her face off. Gotcha. And uh, just before we started recording, you told me to ask you about a coffee story. So maybe yeah. we should start there. And then after we're done with this coffee story, we'll get into it. Okay. Coffee anecdote is, um, so I do drink a- an afternoon coffee or two, uh, such as we're having right now. And I, I sort of prefer lattes or cappuccinos so i prefer espresso over coffee and in any case yesterday afternoon on wednesday afternoons i have um my coach training so it's like a three hour long zoom call and i went we have like a five or ten minute break halfway through so we can go refill our coffee if we need to which is what i went to do but when i poured so i poured the milk for the steamed um coffee the steamed milk and this is gross, but like in my fridge, I sometimes keep a keep a carton um with a little bit of spoiled milk in it to use for baking and like other <laughs> things. Okay, I didn't and know I keep that it, you were supposed to do that, but <laughs> I keep it. You're not. I I don't know if other people do this, but it it's anyway. It's a long story. There are certain things that um that you can use spoiled milk in, and I have a hard time using a full carton myself. So I try and like save and use the stuff for baking anyway um but i i have to find a better system because i keep that carton next to the carton of good milk (laughs) and um anyway so i made myself a nice very nice looking latte and uh took it back with me to my office sat down got back on the zoom call like we're getting into it i go to take like i'm making a point in class and i go to take a nice long swig of my cappuccino And what I wanted to do was, like, scream at the top of my lungs and, like, spew the cappuccino all over because I realized in that moment I had used the spoiled milk and somehow it's not, like, very spoiled. It's just a little spoiled. So I hadn't smelled it or anything before that. And um, But I couldn't because I was, like, actually on camera with my volume on talking and making a point. So I just just pretended to be enjoying my cappuccino. Yep. <laughs> it was the grossest thing in the world. Mm. And then I did that thing where like I kept it because I, I you can't get up. They count uh the minutes that your face is literally in front of the camera because it's a certification thing. Oh wow. So I couldn't get up and make myself a new one. So I kept doing this thing where I would like take a little sip to be like, is it really the spoiled 
Yeah, that is, that is. So like every 20 minutes I'd play that game with myself. Like, no, it can't be. Yeah, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, the coffee that I'm enjoying right now has frothed milk in it and it is delicious and unspoiled. Yes. So thank you very much for the coffee. You're welcome. Um, So I usually start these podcasts, number one, with how we know each other. Mm -hmm. Because almost all the people that I interview are people that I actually know from my life because Everyone has an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also... Plus the people in your life happen to be very interesting, speaking as one. <laughs> yeah, I, I only bring interesting people into my life. So, you know. Um, so if you know me, that means you're an interesting person. Um, and the other thing you can mention is where people can find you. You have your own podcast and, and all that kind of stuff too. Okay. So uh, those are the two things. Where can people find you? And we do our plugs at the beginning. On the oh, okay. That's good. And then, That's uh, good and then how we know each other. Okay. So should I start by how we know each other? Sure. Um, I'm trying to think when our paths first crossed because my paths crossed with your dad before they crossed with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I met your dad when I was working at the Greek Orthodox, then Metropolis now, uh, Archdiocese of Toronto and all of Canada. I was working there and I believe we had a pan Orthodox luncheon uh, and your dad came possibly bearing books that a priest friend of his had recently written about the Ukraine crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and your dad really freaked me out. I didn't, talk with him at all Mm -hmm. he just had like a very perpetually stern look on his face and also a ponytail yeah and somehow the combination of that like (laughs) really freaked me out and yeah so um i think i like crossed paths with him twice in that like two different years in that capacity and then um and then started teaching with the orthodox school of theology and had an actual conversation with your dad and he was not that bad he was like <laughs> was, the least that bad <laughs> he was like the least intimidating you know i wouldn't say the least intimidating priest i know but definitely very congenial and friendly and yeah. always always fun to talk to and randomly sends me texts out of the blue about his pastizio for no reason <laughs> apparently he makes well welcome pastiz- to the family nicole like, <laughs> because that's what i get to for some i i don't i hear from your dad like maybe Every year and a half, and it's just a random text about pastizio. He makes he he makes it himself, pastizio. It's a Greek yeah. dish for those who aren't yes. familiar. And, and he, your dad's not Greek. He's he's, he's married into the Greek family, so okay. you know his yeah. mom's. I mean, his mom, his wife, my mom is half Greek. I did not know that. Yes. Okay. So my uh, yeah, my dad is my dad. My dad's Greek. You know, he's he's Greek, uh, but he's not. But he loves to make pastizio, and then he always yeah. gives it to everybody. He cuts it up and gives it to everybody yeah. in the family and texts you yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very good. He makes it very good. Yeah, that I've heard. I have not actually had it, but I believe I believe him. Um, and you, I, I must have crossed paths with you, with you at Trinity. Was it the death course, or was it? The death course. Before then. <laughs> the death course. Um, we, we, I had actually listened to you as a guest on a podcast. Okay. Before I even moved to Toronto. Okay. So you were. I was a, a guest somewhere? You were a guest on the, was it the area, not the Areopagus. May have been. I would have been talking about the end of the world. Yes. Yeah. Was that We it? were talking about the end of the world. I actually remember where I was driving in Winnipeg when I was listening to that. Oh, that's funny. That. I have yeah. that with, with podcast episodes too. Because you were talking about like 
you know, the, the late middle ages and the time of the reformation mm -hmm. and everything and the, not, not the hysteria, but like, I don't know, maybe the hysteria around. Yeah, like the, end, end times sentiment fervor. Yeah. Right. Right. So anyways, I had heard you talk on that podcast, but then we moved to, uh, can I take the bone out of my dog's mouth? Yes. It's just yeah. it's way too loud. For those, uh, who can't see what's going on right now, which is Felix, all of you, Felix is chewing on a bone and Nicole is spraying water in his face possibly. Or threat threatening to, I should say. It's like he he doesn't really like playing with noisy toys except when I am doing something where it is very important, and then he will find the noisiest toy and be very noisy about it. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. So there might be a, happen a couple of times in this podcast where we step away, and uh, <laughs> now I'm petting him. Yeah. Um. So then I moved to Hamilton, 2017, and then you were uh, teaching. You taught a couple of courses at the at the Toronto School of Theology. Yeah. And one of the courses that you were the professor of, which you were the professor, was sanctification of time. Mm -hmm. You and Father Jeffrey taught co taught that, and then one was the death and burial course. Yeah, death and what was it? Was it death and? I burial? think it was death and burial. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah, that uh, was the first that was the first course that I would have had you in, and then the second yeah. one was yeah. sanctification of time. Yep. Um, so I think that's how we met, and then now you're in Hamilton, and we got to know each other more, and yeah, here we are. Yeah, it's, in it's your interesting because I was a member of Father Jeffrey's church, who, with whom I co-taught those two courses, mm -hmm. and then you became ordained, mm -hmm. and uh, now I live here, and you're my priest. You're my there you go. You know, so and um <laughs> Felix is trying to climb up on the uh counter. Um, but you also you've written books, you have a podcast. Yes. You uh tell us a little bit about that. Um my podcast is called Time Eternal. I talk about the intersection between time and and the lived experience of faith. Right now we're doing a series on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. You and Father Jeffrey were guests on that, or will soon be. I don't know when this will air, but um, talking about the Sabbath and uh, but I've done a lot of other topics related to time on that podcast and have a few books out. Probably the one that I'm most well known for is my was my first book, Time and Despondency through Ancient Faith. Um, and it, I guess it, it has a depressing title, but it's not <laughs> it's not a depressing book. It's ultimately a hope giving book, um, but people can can find out more about all of that on my website, which is NicoleRocus.com. And my last name is spelled R-O-C-C-A-S. Or they can find me on Instagram. I'm on the other social media platforms, but Instagram is where I actually show up pretty much every day and like to have conversations with people. So mm -hmm. it's just at Nicole Rokas on Instagram. So let's get into faith stuff and yeah. faith journey and all that kind of stuff. You, you mentioned at the beginning of your time in despondency book, if I remember correctly, and I have read it a long time ago, I think when it first came out. Um, but you, there's the story about you getting sent to the office or to the nurses counselor, guidance, guidance counselor, counselor yeah. because you were having an existential crisis at a young age. Yeah. Elementary school. I think it was second, first or second grade that I was talking about. I was seven years old. Uh, yeah, I was having an existential crisis, existential crisis. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the like the instigating event that kicked off my existential crisis was that my dad had turned 40 mm. and we had had this big 
surprise party for him. And, um, like I remember at, uh, I don't go into quite this much detail in the book, but I remember at that surprise party, like my aunts, my dad's sisters thought they would be funny. And so we were decorating and they had brought a bunch of like over the hill souvenirs <laughs> and things. And, um, I just remember the decorations were like these stark black and white, like over the hill. Mm-hmm. And I thought I didn't understand what over the hill meant. And so I was like, well, what does it mean? And one of my aunts was like, well, it means that the best years are behind you. It's uh, and it's all downhill. Cause your dad's 40 years old. And she was being like tongue in cheek, but she didn't realize like she was talking to a seven year old. And that's a lot. Like my grandpa had died recently and just, it was a lot. So um, I was in, in like school shortly thereafter and we were talking about calendars or telling time or something. And it just, it just brought my feelings to the surface. And I had to go to the counselor's office for not the first nor the last existential crisis. And my counselor just talked me through about, yeah, it's scary to realize that people you love are going to die. And, mm-hmm. um, it's okay to talk about that and things like that. So, mm. yeah. Well, we're going to definitely talk about time today um, and more some of the, I'd actually like to ask a little bit about that, those, that medieval time and time fervor kind of thing, okay. but, but also just like time in general and how we experience time and all that kind of stuff. But that'll probably be in the second half. Um, but could we talk a little bit about your, upbringing so if i if i remember correctly you were brought up in a christian i was brought up in a cult actually oh yeah (laughs) just kidding that'd be amazing okay please go on i lived i I was born on a commune i'm not sure who my parents are (laughs) we were all children of love we wore flowers in our hair and white robes yeah i was born in wisconsin uh my so so i am a u.s citizen expatriated to canada um and my family was like Christian. Um, you know, we prided ourselves on on not being a certain kind of Christian because we were non-denominational. And so it was like, what kind of Christian are you? Well, not that I'm kind. a Christian. <laughs> I'm a Christian. We're not supposed to have these modifiers. We're just supposed to be followers of Christ. Right. Um, my parents had both grown up Catholic and uh I was baptized in the Catholic Church, although I did not know that. Felix, come here. <laughs> um, I didn't know I was baptized in the Catholic Church until I was like 16 and happened to find pictures of myself, by which time I had been baptized like two different times mm-hmm. in various, a Baptist church that we went to in a non-denominational church. Um, so that was interesting. But uh, yeah, growing up, we... Just, I'm sorry, I can't concentrate with the, We got another Felix the chewing the bone happening right now. Where did these come from? Oh, he took this away, mister. Oh, he like buries bones and then he goes and digs them out from whatever couch cushion they're under mm-hmm. when I take them away. Okay. Um, uh, so growing up, we always went to like, I guess... I don't know. We went to like different churches, but they were all of like evangelical, like fundamentalist leaning evangelical. Some of them Mm -hmm. more fundamentalist than others, but um, 
all of them of kind of like a Baptist persuasion, you know, adult baptism, um, saved by grace alone. Like, so quote unquote, non-denominational, yeah. but coming from a particular denominational heritage. Yeah. And when I was um, in, hmm, like I, I kind of was not, faith was really important in the household that I grew up in, but also like there was some mental health struggles in my family and other dynamics that I don't know, made me very disillusioned about life in general mm. and hard for me to take faith seriously, I guess, or God seriously. And so by the time I was 16, I really, I really thought of myself as like an agnostic slash atheist, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and was actually fairly depressed and stuff, but I ended up coming back to Christ, uh, when I was a junior in high school, actually 20 years ago, because it was right before 9-11. Mm -hmm. It was the summer before my junior year um, in high school. And 9-11 uh, and happened very shortly thereafter. And it was like a big test for me. Like I suddenly had decided to, to I had had some experiences that made me take a second look at Christianity and, and sort of were miraculous in their own right and I, you know, had my own experience, experiences with Christ, but then 9-11 happened and I was like, oh, um, why would God let this happen? Uh, but anyway, it was a good, I guess we need, it was a good thing to have early on because you realize like, oh, Christianity isn't about like good things happening to quote unquote good people. It's, it's actually just a lens for understanding and possibly even seen more of the evil in the world rather than less. Um, Do you think you would have, you mentioned having these sort of spiritual experiences that helped you come back to Christ. Do you think you ever would have come back to Christ if you didn't have those experiences? Um, possibly. Uh, I don't know. Who's it's to a hypothetical say, question. Yeah, who's so. to say how God would have found me outside of those experiences? I will say that I was very depressed and one of the experiences was at a time when I was had concrete plans to end my life. Mm -hmm. And so and the the experiences that that I had prevented me from doing so. So it's possible I wouldn't have because I maybe would have harmed myself. Right. <laughs> um thank God I didn't. Um but I think I don't know, I think God finds us how we need to be found and that's cert that was certainly the case for me um but i'm sure he could have used other means to reveal himself i guess to me mm -hmm. um and i have another question about yeah your the family dynamic because you mentioned it was quite a religious household yeah. but also there was you mentioned some mental health problems and some maybe it made you a little bit jaded regarding the christian faith um was it like that there was just a discontinuity between the faith that was being taught and then the lifestyle that was being mm. observed or like what, what was sort of the thing that caused that? There, sort there of were a lot of, a lot of threads there. Yeah, that was certainly, I mean, that was certainly one of them. And I would argue that is the case no matter what, if you grow up in a family 
of people who profess to be Christians, you are always going to find a disconnect because how many of us are truly faithful in every moment of our lives? And when you're living in close quarters with people day in, day out, you you see the gaps um, in your family members more than any other people. Um, so yeah, there was certainly some of that. And my, my parents were and are very loving parents. Um, so I should put that out there too. And they definitely did their best. They definitely had their own struggles when they were raising us. So it's not as though the difficult things that happened were like things that I'm bitter about, bitter towards them about. But, um, I, so I, among other things was raised in like a very apocalyptic, like the, the apocalyptic feeling was very high again this was approaching the year 2000 and slightly after 2000 y2k was a thing like we we believed that the world was going to end in y2k as at various other times like it seemed like when i was growing up about every two years there was like this renewed sentiment on my dad's part or on someone else's part that the world was going to end and like very vivid prophecies. And so we didn't plan. Like we didn't, there wasn't a lot of planning far in advance of like, oh, you're going to go to college or this or that. Like, because there was always this sense that the world was going to end. Why bother planning? Yeah. And I, it's not that we would say, it's not that my parents would say that out loud, but it was like the mentality. Like I remember when I turned 18 and was moving out and stuff like that and had to start thinking about paying bills and saving money. And and I'm like, why? Like, A, it felt pointless. And I'm like, why does it feel pointless? And I realized, oh, because I'm, because I had by then sort of come out of that mentality of like, I didn't, obviously the world can end at any time. Christ can return all of that. But like, I didn't live with that as like at the forefront of my imagination in the way that I did when I was younger. And so like, time seemed the time of my adult of my like impending adulthood see it seemed highly likely that that would be longer than two years like that I would be on the earth for longer than two years and I remember that just being like oh like I actually have to have a retirement fund or like start thinking long term and that just felt like a heavy weight and confusion and like oh my gosh, like it, that's just so much time to think about. I had only been thinking in like two-year increments. Right. That was one thing. Another thing was just there being mental health and other issues. Um, I really got like, I don't know. I, f- I feel like the mess- the main message I got in church, and it wasn't necessarily my mental health that was at stake. It was other people in my family's Um but like it it almost felt like the tr- some of the- <sighs> we can take what care of felix I- first if you want okay <laughs> well he wants to go in the backyard is mm-hmm. what he's barking at so is it okay if i take him back there yeah yeah we can take okay. a break i'll just cut this in that's okay yeah your heart is a sun and it shines as it opens where your heart is a sun and it shines as it opens. Yeah, your heart is the sun, and it shines as it opens. Well, your heart is the sun, and it shines. 
All right, we're back after a small um, doggy break. Intermission. <laughs> the doggy intermission. Felix is now in the backyard enjoying himself. We have yep. a coffee refill. Yep. And we were talking about the end of the world and how it was weird to think about planning yeah. the next two years of your life when you kind of had a nascent, like, would you say it like a nascent, not a nascent, but a, an underlying trained thought that the end of the world would just happen. Yeah, and there, so there was a lot of dread with that. Um, also, because I think when you're a kid, you don't necessarily have the, I don't know, the emotional skills to cope with that if it if it's presented to you as this kind of sensationalist thing. But at the same time, you're not really modeled. I mean, because the return of Christ is a part of our faith. But when it's presented in like this um, left behind kind of way, that's actually fairly traumatic. To I, I still, if I still, if I walk into a room today and there are not people in it that I expected to be in it, or like it's it's empty where I expected it to not be empty, my first thought is still, oh, I bet they were raptured and I was left really? behind. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's just a split second or whatever, but I, I, it's, I'm still uneasy until I see the person that I expected yeah. to see. And, um, you know, it's hard to make it through childhood. It like a, the best childhood without some kind of fear of abandonment or whatever cropping up. Um, so all of that became like rolled into spirituality for me. Um, also, because there were mental illness stuff in my in my family, I feel like some of the churches that I that we would go to in in one sense almost like fostered um, mental imbalance, and like that's very critical of me to say because it's they were not bad people, um, but there is a certain sort of heightened emotional sensationalism with certain expressions of contemporary Christianity that can be destabilizing in my experience for people with anxiety or depression or what have you. Because when you're on that kind of roller coaster, you know, and every Sunday is this like emotional high and then you go home and like life is as it was before, that can be very destabilizing. And that's how it was for certain members of my family. And I didn't feel like we got a lot of support, just the opposite. It was like, you know, you just got to pray harder and you got to get even more, your emotional highs at church have to be even high. You know, you really have to just like be more, do more, pray more. Um, when you, you know, when you went, when you, when you came back to Christ, you said, you said yeah. kind of going into before nine eleven or whatever. Yeah. Were you going back to the same Christ? No, um, uh, no, I, um, I remember, I don't remember a lot of like how I experienced or thought about Christ in my teenage years prior to becoming so depressed and agnostic and all that. Um, but I do remember, uh, shortly after my, like, return to faith. Um, one of the things that was really, that really struck me was like, people talk about the problem of evil and how hard it is to reconcile a God who allows bad 
things to happen um with yeah how how can a good god allow bad things to happen but for me i never really had a problem with evil um as such to me it seemed like the default it it, it was like why you know why wasn't there more evil? i could live with evil if you if you sort of resign yourself to a to a view of the world that just expects bad things to happen, evil is no longer a, an intellectual or spiritual struggle. And that because I was coming out of depression, that's where my head was at. That's fascinating. Um, but what I had a harder time with was like the goodness that I encountered in the world. So I had um, where I didn't necessarily feel a ton of support um, in my church environments at that time. I did have a few teachers who really came alongside me during that difficult time in my life when I really didn't um, deserve it. Like I, I remember I had thrown a scissors at one of my teacher's head in the middle of class one time. <laughs> like when I was at my worst, I just, I was so bored with life and like whatever that, yeah, I, I randomly got too passionate about a point I was making and threw a scissors at her. And should I be careful as your <laughs> No, like, <laughs> Um, and like, I deserve to be, I don't know, punished at the very least, suspended, expelled. I don't know, but I never was, um, because I had teachers who saw through what was going on and just, and were like, really helped me and really showed me a lot of patience and a lot of love and a lot of forgiveness and a lot of goodness. And I, so I had these encounters with people that I couldn't put in my boxes of like expecting only bad things in the world. And that I had, that made me a lot more uncomfortable. It made me a lot more, I think because it made, it put me in touch with my vulnerability. Um, and when I, and so when I was agnostic and all that, I couldn't, I had nowhere to put that. But when I returned to faith, I had a place to put that because I, I realized like God, like God is the source of everything good. And he is giving, you know, he is putting these people um, in my path and they are showing me his love through their actions. And it gave me a way to, to explain that, but also to like give myself permission to be okay with the fact that people loved me and like I had good people in my life you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I, pro I call it the problem of the good. I would, I remember writing journal entries about that at the time of like, you know, I don't struggle with the problem of evil. I struggle with the problem of good. Um, but that ceased to become a problem when I, when I met Christ again. So mm -hmm. yeah. And then what was your, so post that, like, I guess going into that university age, yeah. early twenties, whatever, what was your church affiliation what, what what did that all look like? So I started going to a new church um, on my own that was different than my parents' church. It was a it was a congregational church, but the thing with con congregational is it's not it's not um, when you call a church congregational, it's referring to their governance style. It's not a denominational label. So there are very liberal like their church. There are congregational churches in the states with like very liberal doctrinal statements, liberal theologies, um, you know, whole spectrum of socioeconomic views and, and congregations and all of that. But there are also um, 
congregational churches that are very, you know, conservative fundamentalists in their leanings towards doctrines. And that's the kind of one that I went to. I actually conscientiously sought out a church that felt, quote unquote, more traditional than um, the church I had been going to with my parents. So, and what that meant to me at the time was like they sang hymns instead of contemporary uh, Christian music. And um, so they sang hymns and they, um, I don't know, had like an older feel to it or whatever, had been around longer. I think my church, I, I was alive when my parents' church was formed. I remember when it was formed. And this other church that I started going to had been like founded by Welsh immigrants way back <laughs> in like the 1800s, which mm -hmm. felt very old to me. So it felt more trustworthy. And for sure, like their services were less emotionally. Um, there wasn't, it wasn't emotionally driven. It was mm -hmm. just very calm, comparatively speaking. And I really gravitated towards that, but I didn't realize, you know, that, that this particular church and many like it, were even more fundamentalist leaning than the ones I had grown up with. So they had a much more us versus them mentality mm -hmm. and um, black and white thinking. And I remember uh, sermons being preached from the pulpit about like explicitly mentioning people or groups of people who were going to hell. Um, wow. And that all seemed like that all seemed at the time like, yeah, um, but that became more difficult. So at the time, I think what appealed to me is its stability, uh, and a sense of historical continuity. Um, and so I kind of took the poison with the medicine and the poison was this very rigid, very, very rigid thinking. And those were formative years because I was like becoming a young adult. I was starting college. I was, becoming my own person. I had moved out of my parents' home and it, and so that's how I was like sort of formed. Um, but then I, my best friend in college, one of them was Catholic, like very faithful Catholic. And I was taken to understand that like she was going to hell. And for, for, I would say for the first few years of our friendship, I thought that God had put me in her life to save her. Mm -hmm. She ended up going on to become a nun. She, well, she discern she was discerning to become a nun, and she lived she, as a nun for like several years before. Now she's happily married to her husband Michael and and stuff. But like, so you didn't do your job very well. I didn't, but I came in the process of we were friends, and I I lived with her for a while. We were roommates. Um, I came to understand that she was a better Christian than I was, and I didn't, you know, my this church that I was going to could not explain that to me. Cause I was mm -hmm. like, I think, uh, like, I think she knows some things that I don't because she was so faithful and such a good, like witness to Christ's love. Um, that that was, by the time I started realizing it, I was like at the end of my college years. And I was like, I, I, I my faith was coming to a new crisis. Cause I was like, I know I'm a Christian, but I can't be that kind of Christian anymore but I live in a small town. So I actually have to keep going to that church because otherwise they're going to think I'm going to hell. And when I did become Orthodox and indeed some of them did think I was and possibly still do probably still do think I'm going to hell. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So by that point I was like already 
kind of on my way out of fundamentalist Christianity. Yeah. So. Wow. It's just shocking to me that people can be, that people can be so sure of who's going to heaven and hell, but it, it feels. It's not shocking to me because, yeah. yeah, because I mean, because I grew up in that, but also it's a, it's a kind of, it's a kind of certainty that's addictive. Right. And as long as you're on the inside, it's not um, troubling at all. Mm -hmm. It's maybe troubling in the sense of like, okay, I have to do everything. I Because you're being judged by your ability to bring others to Christ. Um, but that's a lesser risk because you're, already, let's face it, you're already saved. I mean, you could like kill somebody and you're already saved pretty much. So, mm -hmm. so like, yeah, it's as long as you're on the inside, what's the downside? Like, complete and utter certainty okay i'll take it yeah and why do you why why is it that you were able to recognize maybe some of the poison in that and leave and other people live their entire life in a congregation like that and I, and, and think yeah that i wondered that i think part of it was because we we never went to one we because um because we went to several different churches over the course of my childhood and so i think i think if i had if like my parents had stayed at like one church continuously from the time i was born until the time like i graduated from college or something and i had never had any serious doubts during that time i think it would have been a lot harder for me to think outside the box but as it was we we went to three or four different churches and then i went um and then I went on my own to this congregational church. And so, but I had heard the same or similar things at every church, this mentality of like, we're the, we're the ones on the inside and um, everyone else is, are the bad guys. Like not in those words, but that was the mentality that I kind of was like, um, really? Cause like two blocks away at the other church, they're saying the same thing and they wear the same clothes and like they have almost the same doctrinal statement except for this one little point that's like arguably, you know, so, um, so that's one thing, but I think also because I had grown up with like mental illness and other issues in my family that a lot of other families weren't dealing with in these churches. Like a lot of the people in these churches were like upper white middle class, um, and a bit more affluent than my family had been that I had had to think of, think about some things. And that's why I had all, my whole struggle in my teenage years is because it's like, okay, the reality that I'm getting in church of like, not prosperity gospel, but this just pray and things are going to be fine is like not the reality that I see every day of my life. Um, so I had had to like think outside of the box just to reconcile my life as it actually was with what I was hearing Sunday mornings. And I think that's a big part of why ultimately like the fundamentalist mentality came up short for me is like, even once I was able to integrate it with my life, then my life got bigger and bigger because I was going to a secular university, making friends there, da, 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 da. And so now I have to reconcile that with that bigger life and you can't eventually it just breaks down and you can't mm -hmm. i'm gonna go get felix and we'll yep. be right back sounds good ill bones are the earth in this thing with the mountain where your bones are the earth and they sing with the mountain ill bones 
So, we're coming up to the end of the public side of the podcast, and we're going to do another 45 minutes on the private side of the podcast on Patreon. Um, so if you're listening to this and you'd want to hear another 45 minutes of our conversation and as well as a backlog of all of season one's episode, which is something like 30, 35, I forget how many interviews, um, then you can go back, you can become a patron if you go to, uh, patreon.com slash pryingpriest or pryingpriest.com. Uh, you can become a patron and get access to all those episodes because if you're not a patron, you only get half of the entire show that I create. Um, but before... We go to the Patreon-only podcast, Nicole. We talked a little bit about why would somebody stay? Why would somebody stay? Like, what is it about you personally that sort of was able to see some of the bad things about that kind of way of thinking? But then you also grew up in a household that you described as sort of apocalyptic or, you know, Mm -hmm. there's the world's going to kind of end at any time. And you mentioned that that kind of thinking can also there was some preaching in the church that you grew up in that might might foster some kind of mental health problems in, in people. So what, in your estimation, what does believing that the end of the world is going to happen like now or like within the next three months or, you know, this apocalyptic imagination, what is it about that that I guess people find useful or why do people mm-hmm. do it? Right. If it, if it does lead to sort of negative things in, in life, why does that kind of way of thinking actually even exist in the first place? Like what so what purpose reasons. is it serving? So many, so many purposes. <laughs> OK, so to to answer that, like one thing I would like to point out is that apocalypticism is not a new thing. It You find waves of it across certainly all of Western history. Um, but even in like Christ's time, there was a sect of, of very apocalyptic Jews, the Essenes. And so, you know, it's very, I'm not sure if you, if you have the same kind of apocalyptic apocalypticism outside of the Judeo-Christian context, but this is very endemic to the Western mind. And um, you find that apocalyptic fervor tends to tends to become more um, heightened in times of unrest and uncertainty. Um, so so like if there's widespread war or widespread um, economic fluctuation, um, or disease or something like that, you find belief in that the end of the world is near becoming much more fervent, whether it's in the Middle Ages, whether it's in the 16th or 17th century. Um, And I think that one of the reasons for that is it gives, first of all, it um, contextualizes the moment you're going through in a much bigger historical and eternal context. Um, So like, like, for example, COVID, uh, it's the, the allure of framing that in an apocalyptic context is that suddenly there's kind of a purpose behind it. Oh, this is part of like, this is part of God 
coming back and that's why things are so bad and and so if things yeah things are bad but like they're not going to last forever and god's actually secretly behind it all and there's a reason whereas um maybe there's not actually a reason with a capital r and that that is is maybe more troubling we do the same thing when somebody dies like we try and think through like particularly tragic deaths of maybe, well, maybe there's secretly a reason why God allowed that person to die when they did. Maybe, um, you know, they, if they didn't die then and like had continued living, they would have like died in an even more tragic way. Or maybe they needed to die because they were already quote unquote saved um, and so if they hadn't been in that time and place at that moment, someone unsaved would have been and like God spared that person so they would have more time to like ask Jesus into their heart or whatever. Or maybe that child um, was killed by that murder because if they had lived, they would have gone on to like do some heinous deed and God sort of like, like killed them before their like evil, the evil in their heart came to fruition or whatever. People really like say and think these things. And because it's hard for humans to just say, maybe there isn't a reason. Like maybe God, maybe it's not that God has like a reason behind everything so much as he takes what he's given through our free will and manages to allow some modicum of goodness into the world, like through the complexity of our evil. Maybe that's it. Um, but yeah, apocalypticism gives this like cosmic purpose behind it all. It also situates you. If you're the one with the apocalyptic belief, usually you believe that you're the, you're the good one. You're on the, on the winning team. So it, it's like, okay, maybe, um, all of my unvaccinated friends are like dying and getting sick and like being quote unquote persecuted because they can't go to work unless they're vaccinated, but secretly we're on the winning team. So like everyone's going to, in the end, everyone's going to realize we were the right ones and they were wrong. Um, and that the conspiracy really was correct all along. Um, and then finally, another reason why it's alluring, I think is it, it gives you actually some, some level of control over the situation. Um, and I'm not sure this comes through so much in like 21st century expressions of apocalypticism, but certainly throughout history, like the, the prophets crying out about the, the, the end of the world, like let's say in the reformation it was, it was not just like Christ is coming back. The end of the world is coming. Da da da. It was Christ is returning. So repent. And there was always like this sense of like, if, if more of us just repented, like even, even the people who claim to be Christians, like, you know, this plague is coming on us or this famine is coming on us because even though we claim to be Christians, like we're still doing something to anger God. We have to really examine our ways and really repent and really come back to Christ. And like, so that his anger can be turned and maybe so like, in the Reformation, for example, if Christ didn't return when it was predicted that he would return, it was because we changed our ways and Christ was merciful and held off. Um, and then if things got bad again, it's like, okay, well, what what did we start doing again that we <laughs> we had stopped doing when Christ was merciful? Okay, we have to stop that again. But it it comes with this 
this thing that you can actively do of, of repenting and, you know, stop being sinful. And then, and maybe just maybe like you will have this, you will contribute to things in a cosmic way and Christ will hold off on coming, you know? So all of those things combined, I think make it pretty uh, attractive as a worldview, especially when there are very difficult and uncertain events happening all around. Now that I'm talking about it, I'm like, man, I should be more apocalyptic again. I should. <laughs> I miss those days. You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, cryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the